Hey, it's me. Your website. This is kind of awkward, but... Are you embarrassed of me? I mean, you don't show me off anymore or tell anybody about me. Worst of all, I know I have so much to offer you in helping you to find the best talent, to seducing your ideal customers, and articulating what your brand stands for. Huck Finch can help us. They specialize in crafting websites that solve business problems and are easy on the eyes. On top of that, they knock out websites in under 60 days and their pricing is transparent, so there's no sticker shock. Give me the makeover I deserve. Learn more at HuckFinch.com because an ordinary website just isn't enough. Welcome to Life on Brand, where builders and breakers share how they live life on their own terms. As always, the show is brought to you by the Hug Finch boys, Matt and Hyde. Check us out at hugfinch.com. Again, that website is hugfinch.com. And also, subscribe to the show because you know you want to. All right, let's jump right in. Lisa Sobe is principal at Synecdoche Design Studio, a boutique design make architecture studio in Ann Arbor that works in the fields of interior design buildings and furniture fabrication. Synecdoche has created some amazing spaces in and around the Ann Arbor area from nightcap to lo-fi to the standard bistro to the lunchroom, just to name a few. You know when you walk into a, a Synecdoche space immediately. And that's why we're so excited and to chat with Lisa and learn a little bit about how they choose projects, how they apply their vision, mission, and mantra to selecting those projects. So thanks, Lisa, for being on the show and taking some time with us today. Thanks. So uh, we'll jump right in for some background questions. It's impossible to not ask the question about the, the story behind the name. So we'll start there. I imagine you have it practiced a few times at this yeah. point. Well, I mean, it started with my partner Adam and I in undergrad. And so we stayed late night in the studio watching videos and making models and all those sorts of things. And this is when the movie Synecdoche in New York came out. So it was just a movie that we liked. We liked the layering of the narrative with the actual making and creation of a world in it. And then we just realized that we liked the word itself. Yeah. And so as, as we were working in school and then we got these projects and it came to the point that we were starting an office, that word Synecdoche came back to us. And we knew that we didn't want to name it after ourselves. Another office that we really liked is called Morphosis and just kind of the idea of some transcendental language defining the experience and kind of the mission of what the firm would be. Synecdoche mm -hmm. kind of laid that out for us, right? So, I mean, simultaneous understanding mm -hmm. a lot about how materials or single words can stand in for an entire idea. And so it felt like it fit more broadly in terms of what we could do and also let us kind of move around within the world of design that we were working on mm -hmm. that it didn't feel so structured into a certain design style or mission. Very cool. Is, is that one of the reasons you didn't want to be just kind of the, the last name thing? Did you want a little bit of that freedom in the name? Or? Yeah. I think like always kind of working in collaboration, it, it was important. I think also the types of people we were working with didn't know if it would just be us 
forever. Also, Smith and Sove isn't the most exciting of an architecture <laughs> studio name. I always joke that we could probably write an entire lecture about like what not to name your studio and next he would be at the top of the list, right? <laughs> it's something that you can't spell, so you can't Google, you can't pronounce, the word of yeah. mouth is awful. Um, but for us, it just almost felt like a, a speakeasy password. So if you knew us, then you knew us. And it was kind of part of this really great community that we started building. And so far it's worked. Yeah. I mean, I, I personally, I think that's kind of how I feel about it as well. There's just, this, it's like unique enough to where there's mystery. Like you want to immediately Google it. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of Googleable in this completely different yeah. way where you're just kind of exploring what that word is yeah. about. And it's a really cool definition meaning. So yeah. It always engages a conversation. Sure. You don't just yeah. kind of bypass it. Yeah. yeah. No, just, I'm sure none of your clients get past that part either. So you mentioned this started in the student days yep. uh, with your partner, Adam, and that was about a decade ago at this point. What led you ultimately to, to make it into the kind of real thing outside of the student world? The recession. <laughs> that might be the all-time best answer for, for that question. Shoot, like, why do you serve business? Well, there are no jobs, so I'm just going to pretend I have a job yeah. by declaring myself the owner of a business. <laughs> right. Uh, so, I mean, that was really how it started. We knew we were going to grad school, right? So we started in undergrad, so we didn't have time to really get full-time jobs. Mm-hmm. And internships weren't even really a thing because there was no work to be done during the recession. And so for us, we, we started Synecdoche because we got one small project, mm-hmm. found it on Craigslist for a graphic design studio, and we took it, we did it, and Synecdoche formally started 10 years ago because they cut us a check to buy materials, and we couldn't deposit a check in our personal <laughs> yeah. checking account that said Synecdoche it's in the finance, order, yeah. right? So we're like, oh, shoot. And then it all of a sudden, like, very rapidly, how do you start a business? Mm-hmm. We Googled, you know, it's like you file the LLC, and we actually drove to Lansing to expedite the paperwork to get everything open. So, like, that, that was, like, the entire reason to start was just because we had our summers kind of vacant from mm-hmm. work. And so we just had a space to do the work we wanted to do. There was no kind of early idea that Synecdoche was going to be like a long game, mm-hmm. uh, that it was something that we just wanted to do something and have our creative pursuits on the side. And so even when we graduated, we started working with our thesis advisors and they knew about Synecdoche because we actually won a competition. And so we were like, yeah, we'll come work for you after you graduate, but we're going to, have to take two weeks off first because we have to make this pavilion and go to Atlanta and install it and then come back. And they're like, all right, but two weeks. And then Synecdoche can't be so disruptive. <laughs> and then we, we left that job two years later to do the lunchroom. So yeah. Synecdoche became disruptive again <laughs> in, in, into that role. So like it was this whole cadence of like, let's just do a project a year, an independent project a year and see what happens. And let Synecdoche kind of be the vehicle for that and mm-hmm. it just turned into a business and I think from like even a couple of the years in between grad school we were doing like wedding photography and you know headshots and just graphic design just like any little thing to avoid getting a job at that <laughs> point uh, but you know like photography was great it's like you photograph for a day you edit for a day and then you've got the rest of the week to like yep. work on competitions and other things so it gave us that room and I was a single mom at the time before Adam and I got married. So it really gave me the room to not pay for daycare as a really poor student and kind of think in an entrepreneur spirit. Mm-hmm. So it, it really like allowed us to just be like, all right, here's the norm. 
but don't fit into the norm. Life is chaotic. What the fuck? What else yeah, do we do? Don't know, <laughs> don't know any better. Yeah. Do you think, like, speaking to the kind of entrepreneurial spirit part of it, do you did you always know you wanted to have your own thing? Sometimes even looking back, there's there's flags that you don't notice. At the yeah. Time. I mean, even growing up, my dad, he's a he's a software engineer, but he bought a car. He bought like a, one of the first Volkswagen bugs when they came back out mm-hmm. and he invented this little chip. And if you put punched in the right kind of combo on your key uh, fob, he would like roll the windows down a little crack and roll it up, you know, and he, he sold them for, you know, under a hundred bucks. And then it was like me putting all of the circuit boards together and then soldering <laughs> them. Like that was my job when I was young, like a kid. <laughs> And so, like, I saw him be like, oh, here's, like, a little niche that I can just jump into and it's not so hard. So I think that, like, I, I had some of that mindset of, oh, you just kind of do these things on the side. Mm-hmm. But like him, he always worked for somebody. I think in architecture for me, too, I knew from middle school I took a drafting class and I was like, I'm going to go be an architect. And so then I took all the drafting classes in high school. And then I went, like, I was like, and then I'm going to go Lawrence Tech because that's where you pragmatically learn about architecture. And I was like, and then I'll go to U of a-. So, like, and I just did that with no backup plans <laughs> along the way. I was like, this is my path. And then I got done with grad school and I was like, shoot, there's the end of the path that I had planned. I didn't know what to do, you know, and so all this kind of happened. So I think, like, there, there were nuances, like, in my youth about having that entrepreneur spirit but it really kind of I guess hit me at my finish line mm-hmm. that I had to do something else and I'm just not a good employee so <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I had to do so I had to you know be my own boss I guess you said two things that I think come up a lot for entrepreneurs which is like I didn't really have a backup plan and yeah. uh, the last part that you just mentioned as well which is just like you know, you just had no other choice and wouldn't be a very good employee. Yeah. <laughs> There's this like realization at different times for everyone. Where it's like, I might not be awesome at working yeah. on anything for anybody else. Yeah. Along those lines, you know, there's usually this milestone point where it becomes real and it wasn't a side project anymore. Yeah. When is there a story around that for you or when that kind of happened or you had that yeah. realization? I think it was about four years ago. And it happened really quickly all within that summer. I finished the Master's of Science Conservation. So I went back to school because I really wasn't doing much. So I was like, that was a great, great way to just teach and just explore something else. Finished and then had nothing to do. So I taught at Detroit Mercy for a semester. Adam was actually doing videographer work for the College of Architecture at U of M. So we were still doing like these weird gig economy sort of things that weren't what we wanted to Before do. The gig economy. <laughs> and then, you know, it's like, I was like half teaching and then half doing this other stuff. And I think then came that spring, a previous professor had a job, like a project, Akasushi restaurant. And he called us in and said, Hey, I got this fellowship in Rome. I think I'm actually not going to be stateside for this entire project. Do you want to partner and do it with us? I said, yes. We heard that Spencer Restaurant, which was Central Provisions at the time, was turning brick and mortar. So I basically cold called Abby and Steve and said, let me take you out for a beer and tell you why we're going to design your space. And that Lauren Groh, who was the CFO of Deepfield at the time, that just got acquired by Nokia a couple of years ago, he found us through a blog interview about the lunchroom and then like LinkedIn messaged us and was like, hey, can you help us with our space? It's so like all three projects happened simultaneously after actually no projects really since the lunchroom. And that was the point where I was like, oh, 
okay, we're going to quit our jobs. So I was kind of on the front end working on them since it was a little easier. Adam was the full time uh, doing the videography and he, he left that summer in June. And then we signed the lease here in our studio in October. So that was really the ramping up period. That was the first time that we had both left any side revenue and gave to just do Synecdoche. Yeah. And from then on out, it was like, and then we signed a lease on a space and then we hired our first employee. And like within six months, we were like hiring the next one and yeah. like three more contracts. So there's just like this weird one project a year to like three and then four and then five sort of thing pretty quickly. So there were, you know, false starts for six years, basically. <laughs> and then a really hard foot on the gas. And another trend that we've noticed is it's they're all overnight successes. Like everybody's business happens in yeah, like once six it years of false yeah. starts. Yeah. Everyone's like, wow, you guys did this in six months. It's like, well, <laughs> there's, there's it a really hurt for a long time. <laughs> We talked a little bit about the name, but uh, we love talking about these kind of like taglines or mantras as well. Do good work is sort of synonymous with your brand at this point. Where did that come from? Was it always there? Yeah. So do good work was actually what, when that ramping up happened, it was like, oh, how is this all really kind of kickstarting at once? And it, we kind of recognized it was like, do good work and people will notice Right. And that's that's literally what happened in the transition from doing from deep field over to duo as our next tech office was Doug Song was friends with Lauren, heard about us renovating this space. Lauren showed him around while it was in renovation. And then as we were like installing the conference tables we made for deep field, Doug casually walked into the second floor at 10 o'clock at night. And he's like, oh, hey, funny running into you here. It's like, no, you literally like at least like hack through two locked doors to get here. <laughs> like, this was not casual. You intentionally made your way up here. You saw the lights on to talk to us. So like he, he saw the work and was like, this is what we need, you know, at our headquarters come and, you know, let's see if we can work together. And so that was it. It was like design is your billboard, design is your calling card. Right. And so it's less about kind of telling what people telling people what you can do and just showing them. And so I think that was, you know, all those, those six years of false starts at least built a really strong portfolio yep. that made that kind of convincing tipping point factor. And so w when we, you know, reflect on, you know, how we're doing decision-making and those things do good work is, you know, one about like not perfection, but like to, to what end and what quality it's like, just do good work. Like that at its core is, more than mediocre right it, which in ann arbor like it's just a little <laughs> setting a bar a little higher than where it's at mm -hmm. uh, but just doing it doing it for six years of false starts doing good work and we try to you know the more that we're finding ourselves being really lucky with where, where we've gotten and the connections and the support we've gotten in the community we want to do good and support back mm -hmm. so doing a lot of that we've made a lot more effort to, you know, five, 10% of revenue and profits are going back into supporting community nonprofits. And then the work, right? Like we're all part of the work in a lot of different ways with the design make portion, trying to allow everybody to work on all parts of the project, I think was also important. And so some of our designers come in with more fabrication experience, some with less, but allowing everybody to kind of learn mm -hmm. and be within kind of all fields because we don't want to do we don't want to silo and so it allows 
you know, we've got designers that have been in traditional offices that are interested in learning to weld. It's like, great. The next time we're welding something, come over to the shop mm-hmm. and you can learn alongside. And then maybe the next project, you can actually weld the thing that you designed. And so the work part allows everybody to not just design the thing, but work on the thing. Very cool. So. Yeah. The main topic we want to get into with you is, uh, as Matt said at the beginning, you know, when you walk into a space, you know it was designed by you guys. So we want to know about how you pick projects. And before we jump into that, um, we want to know how like your vision statement ties into it. So when we were looking at the vision statement, part of it reads to elevate the mindset of the Great Lakes region as a design hub. Mm-hmm. What inspired this uh, as something you wanted to put into the vision statement so clearly? Well, like talent attraction and attrition, I think is the thing we see in our clients and with ourselves and our competition. And so like one, one thing that we do talking about that kind of good and contribution part is we, we support a grant at the university of Michigan that is the architecture student research grant. And it gives students independent funding to work on a project. That's not a student project. Right. So because you can't show classwork to a client and be like, hey, look, I can work, like hire me. So this gives a little bit of basically seed funding to do a preliminary project. They're like, well, why would you, you know, like, why? And it's like, well, hopefully they start a project out of it. Our first project was a $1,500 project. It doesn't take much. We really hope that $1,500 can build a portfolio piece that they may start their own office. Mm-hmm. And stick around. I'd love another version of Synecdoche, like a different version here to compete with because raising the bar of competition also raises the bar of what the rest of the community expects of design. And so I think that's been something for us when we say elevate the level in the Midwest is when we look around at like who we're working with and working against, we just want everybody to be a bit more ambitious. and. We see people graduating from these great schools or starting things and then heading off to a coast, right? There's the third coast of, you know, the Great Lakes has not yet been a place that people feel like they can start something that they all want to kind of go and find mentorship and experience on the coast of these bigger firms and then maybe come back in that boomerang state of it's a great place to raise a family. And I want it to be more of a, it's a great place to start a business. It's a great place to design. It's a great place to create something new. And so for us to just kind of be an example and a support structure to making more of that happen. Yeah, that's really great to hear you say that. I think that ties in a lot with what with me and Matt when we started the Hub Finch was we don't exclusively work with the Great Lakes or Midwest companies, but we really did start in in Ann Arbor and the Michigan, the state of Michigan, because we did want to play some role to show mm-hmm. that you know, this is a great place to start a business. You can have a great brand here. You don't have to go to the coast right. and hopefully bump into someone in San Francisco to pitch your app idea or whatever it is. Like right. you can do it here. And just like Doug, just like you are doing uh, here in Ann Arbor. Well, even with that, like we've got clients in San Francisco, right? So mm-hmm. before chatting here, it's like I showed you guys a project that we sent to San Francisco. So right. now, yeah. It's like making the coast realize, hey, there's some great makers and designers in, <clears throat> in the Midwest. We should call them to collaborate with us on our project out here instead of saying, oh, I've got to go out there to be able to do the work. It's like, actually, they think that the talent is here and they want to tap into yeah. it to be a part of the project. Right. So just reversing that whole conversation. Exactly. Yeah, it's, it's cool to hear, too, because like you hear that about tech all the time in Ann Arbor, but it's, mm-hmm. it's cool to hear 
in the design world. That's, mm-hmm. It's that same type of a, a thing and have somebody like you here in the community that's doing projects out there and pulling that attention back because mm-hmm. that works. That works too. Yeah. Sometimes better. Yeah. Maybe it's cool or unique that they pulled something <laughs> from the Midwest and not from the design firms within the two the mile radius. Yeah. yeah. So the, um, so we want to ask, like, how do you choose the projects that you work on? The as you mm-hmm. as you guys wrote it to badass projects. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think I think we've gotten really good at saying no to anything that's like franchise work that doesn't really have a vision or doesn't have a way that we can work on the space and the business simultaneously. We definitely don't do residential work. It's just not something that we're quick to, and apt to kind of react to. And I think part of it is the projects we do like are ones that have business models that are structured that can be spatialized. And that's what we're, I think we have a a good niche in. So to say that differently, it would be how we can help design the business in a way that the space creates that experience and feeds back into the success of the business. So we ask a lot of questions early on about what they're looking for in a space. And if they say, oh, where are you going to paint the green wall? Or where are you going? It's like, no, you're asking the wrong questions. <laughs> and, and so we like to say like, oh, what's your growth strategy? You know, what's your customer experience like? Is it like for a restaurant? Do you want to turn the tables a lot? Like a uh, small price, fast turn? Or do you want people to linger around for three or four hours and just spend more and more money? You know, like, because we can get to the bottom line in a lot of different ways. So mm-hmm. let's massage out how the space reacts and how the business reacts together. And so we like to come in as a team player. And if clients aren't kind of transparent and open to us being part of that conversation, that's probably not a project that we're good at working on. Yeah, pretty early on. Yeah, <laughs> because then it feels so much more transactional yeah. instead of kind of a team working towards the goal of making that a successful project. Yeah. Yeah. I, I like the fact that you do say no to potential customers who are either hesitant or against this idea of like mm-hmm. you being more than just there to be uh, as a friend of ours called like design monkeys, mm-hmm. just go in and just do, do yep. work. I like your space here, make that space for me yep. when really you want to do more than that, have the design be, have an impact on the business. Yeah. So that's a really cool way of like just filtering out bad customers. Yep. How, how some like, do you find clients are surprised when you start asking some of the, I guess, more on the, the business air quote side of questions? I, like it can be exciting, yeah. Uh, but I'm just curious in your experience if we sometimes ask questions that are maybe left of center of what they're expecting. Yeah. I wonder what. I think. That works. I think they're not surprised. I think they're not asking. They're not thinking about them as much as even we might be. So, say with a tech company we start with, hey, what's your growth plan? So what's your hiring count? And I know it's hard to project it, but at the same point, we've had you know projects we've worked on where they say, design the space. We're like, well, if we design it and by the time you move into it, your employees don't fit, it's all for naught. So we really need to think about, I mean, the timeline of construction is long, mm-hmm. right? Like it takes a long time to get permits, to build the thing out, to get the furniture, to move it in. And so like, this isn't like a ready tomorrow. It's a ready in a year sort of scenario. And so it's like, what does a year look like? And then once you move in, how long do you want to be there? So what does three years look like? And what's the worst case and the best case? So can we introduce you to other small startups that you might co-work with 
And so how do we deal with even like, hey, how do we phase out this project that we might be able to isolate different zones? So for IP and security, you could actually have two people in one space and a sublet. And so we think strategically like that because we've seen the pain points that are more than just space. It's about growth. So I think they appreciate that. It really is a pressure point because they're like, we can't, we can't predict the future. Like we don't have a crystal ball, but it helps. It also helps clarify expectations. Right. So it's like, we are not going to solve your problems. If you can verify that you don't know what your problems will be in a year, you also have to respect our approach to this and that whatever comes out of this, the problems might not be all solved in a year. Yeah. So like calibrating that with clients, I think is really important too. Yeah. yeah. Where did this two-prong idea kind of come from? from the, you want to be able to do obviously creative design and, and work, but also having that uh, that impact on the business. Like where did that second part come from? Because I, I would assume most people, when they hear this, they're like, oh, that's interesting that they do that. Yeah. I th- well, it's, it's actually more it's strategically to get the design to happen. Because the more you talk about it as business metric, the more they realize that they can't cut it out, right? They can't value engineer it out. Like, yeah. like, oh, we don't need that. We'll just like cheap out on this design piece or, you know, cut that thing out. But if you're talking about everything, all, all design as a performance metric to the design, to the business, mm-hmm. then it's so tethered to what their goals are that they can't delaminate it. It guarantees for us that the design survives the budget. Yeah. And so we talk about how design adds value instead of has cost. Mm-hmm. And so really the it, it's it's been formulating our mindset to defend and protect the design into the project. And not just because we want it to, you know, just look good in the end, but we do want it to perform and we want it to have legs and be there as long as possible. It's not going to stay there if the business fails, right? right. <laughs> like we don't want to see the thing gutted out in yeah. two years because the business fails. So we're just think, we're just talking to the client in their value stream, and their value stream isn't just make it look pretty and we'll spend whatever money we need to. Their value stream is it's going to be really badass and sweet looking, and guess what? People are going to want to work there, mm-hmm. and your attrition rate is going to go down, yeah. and your hiring is going to uh, cut from a six month pipeline to a three month pipeline because it's just more exciting to yeah. be in that space. Mm-hmm. And I mean, we've literally had like clients have said, well, you designed that tech office and then our people left and went and worked there. So now we need to upgrade our <laughs> office so it looks cooler so that they want to come it's and like back the here. We become part of the, like, yes, there's a lot of other perks and metrics to, you know, retaining and, and attracting talent, but this becomes a value thing, right? And when you talk about the revenue loss for employees, if you can say that design is part of that, it pays for itself. Right. And if you can convince anybody that your work pays for itself, yeah. people are on board way earlier and trust you and just let you do your thing and work in your expert level. Yeah, I, I love that you add the try to add the functionality to the design, mm-hmm. like and not design just for design's sake. Mm-hmm. It's, my favorite designer of all time is Mies van der Rohe, and I just loved how he makes everything very functional mm-hmm. and everything has a purpose to it and it has some sort of value mm-hmm. uh, versus like some other designers who maybe are inspired by that and want to create that, but they lack some of the functionality. I think I've been to Airbnbs where they have great views, but you can't open the window. <laughs> They're just like, this is great, but I can't open this window at all. <laughs> the lack of functionality of what a window should be able to yeah. do. So like, if it gets really hot, I can't open this window to cool down. Yeah. So. 
I think you kind of answered this already, but the next question is about how do you incorporate feedback or the vision of your client into the design that you want, that, you, that you're creating for them to make sure that the end result is what they want? I think we talk about experience a lot. So it's experience over aesthetics. Like you guys have mentioned, like if you go into a space, you know it's the next piece design. Like it is pretty obvious in a lot of ways. I didn't know we had a reporter go to one project and she was like, who designed it? And the owner was like, take a guess. Like snack to and it's like, yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> but for us, a lot of that is just kind of the authenticity. I think there's like that part into it. What comes across as a certain aesthetic, you know, might be a little more on our side, which is about, you know, true materials. We work with metals and woods and those sorts of finishes. We like to think about light and acoustics as materials and kind of qualities that we need to include in the space. And so you're not going to see a lot of laminates and a lot of color and things like that. But what we do look at when we try to get feedback from a client is that experience. And we talk about even like, what is their brand experience? We had a call today that we were talking to the logo designer. It was like, what did you want people to feel when they looked at the logo? Is it about being fun and playful or serious? I mean, I had my own reactions mm-hmm. to it, but I wanted yeah. her to confirm them so that we can say, okay, we want that same feeling in the space. And how do we achieve that? And so it comes to the types of spaces that you experience, right? Just a lot of private space or a lot of exposed space places. Like how do you connect with people? Do you feel like you're connecting with people in the hallways and the stairwells or connecting with them in the lounges and the cafes or, you know, in line for a really packed and busy small restaurant or are you, is it actually because you see them across the room? So we really try to think about narratives when we look at design as to experience scenario planning. So it's like we, we walk through the space mentally and say, okay, if you walk through, who do you run into first? Do you know what to do next? Like, is there a happen chance for this or that? I think nightcap is a really great kind of narrative example. When we designed the bathrooms, we were like, Hey, the gender neutral bathrooms, we can push for, you know, code, you know, and kind of changing legally what we can expect of a bathroom a certain way. But also, it's this open and unthreatening space where you can meet at the sink. You know, it's like you see somebody across the at the bar, and then you see her go to the bathroom to, like, fix her makeup. And guess what? You can just go wash your hands next to her and, like, say hey in a much quieter space than right at the bar. And then you can get dismissed, you know, in front, <laughs> but not in front it of all your friends. Work out. It could work out. It would be really cute. And you could take a selfie in front of the you look good on the floor. Or you could get, get dismissed, but not in front of your friends, right? And so, like, there's, like, these, like, weird pockets where you're like, oh, this is my chance to yeah. kind of go chat with her. So, like, you, you play out kind of those kind of scenarios. Like, how would people use the space? Do you want them to use that space like that? You know, and then you kind of design it in or you tweak it. So I think that's the way that we try to think about it is a lot more into the storytelling instead of just like the image. Yeah. Yeah. It's so great that you guys put in the thought with the, especially using Nightcap as an example, the thought was like the restroom there, because I think everyone that we've ever introduced to Nightcap, as gorgeous as the main bar and space is, literally everyone who's gone to the restroom has come back and said, have you seen the restroom? It's so <laughs> cool. Yeah. So yeah, I, I just took my fiance there for the first time she had been there. And that was like yeah. her, her big takeaway that she still yeah. talks about like, and everything else there is fantastic as well. So yeah. it really stands out. Like you said, not just from the looks part, but yeah. the experience is yeah. totally different from this like traditionally mundane yeah. thing that we do. Right? Yeah. yeah. I mean, bathrooms, we have 
we have a passion for bathrooms because like they could be the leftover piece, right? And then mm-hmm. you just put the bathrooms in in the back yeah. and you're done. But I I think whenever I go anywhere, I check out the bathrooms because it also can be the red herring to the shortcuts. So if you've just drywall and painted and called the bathroom a day with no design consideration, like what kind of ingredients are you putting into your food, right? Like what other shortcuts might you be taking? So the entire public side of the experience has to be designed. I mean, hopefully the back of the house too, because there's efficiencies there that help for the business. But if shortcuts are visible and experienced, they might be hiding somewhere else too. Yeah. So for us, we try to go into that level with all of our projects, yeah. you know, Nightcap was definitely a certain one, but even like lo-fi downstairs, they're just two single uh, use bathrooms. But even just playing with the idea of a rock wall instead of a mirror above the sink, it just gives that little hint of surprise. It's like, oh, they didn't just drywall and stick a mirror (laughs) up and a sink up and call it a day. Yeah. Yeah. So you definitely know where you are. If someone just like parachuted you into a bathroom somehow, you would, you would know. Yeah. (laughs) We've been talking a little bit about the different uh, spaces and uh, the feel of them, like, what do you draw inspiration for for projects? So you mentioned the experience idea and really being able to tell a narrative story. But um, beyond that, like, what are some places you draw uh, inspiration? I think we start pretty early with materials, actually. And it probably goes back to, you know, synecdoche. One of the big examples we use when people are like, what is a synecdoche? It's like paying with plastic, right? And so, again, it's a material standing in for something. I'm not actually paying with bits of plastic that I carry around in my pocket. It's a piece of plastic with a magnetic strip that allows for entire electronic banking scenario. And so it's the same with materials. I think that they can stand in for a lot of different things. They can invoke a lot of different kind of memories and sensibilities to them. And so we lay out a material palette, I think, really quickly. And so when we look at that, we do look at, you know, how did other people kind of paint with materials, right? Instead of just like colors on the wall, where are those kind of layers added? So like you talk about Mies in the Barcelona Pavilion, right? And like how the marble wall just kind of plays through and this, not just it as a thing, but the symmetry that it plays out with the grid. And so how the relationship of that material evokes a sort of discipline, uh, versus just kind of casually put there. So I think that's a lot of our preliminary thoughts. I think we think we try to work at multiple scales simultaneously too. So architecture, of course, is a really big scale. And then there can be an interior designer that comes in and the lighting designer. We try, we hijack a lot of that in the house and try to think of it holistically. But I mean, we've done things like made the door handles before. And so we're thinking about the tangible things that people interact with. And so we'll kind of zoom in pretty quickly and think about how other people have zoomed in uh, before we kind of zoom back out. So we pull inspiration from toy designers, industrial designers, you know, things like that too. So architecture, I think, is just kind of one field that we're thinking about. I mean, for us, we do a lot of adaptive reuse, right? So it really does come down to the interiors more than a lot of things. We're not building the roof and the walls a lot of the time. We're partitioning out that space that we're given. So we have to think a little bit differently than a typical architecture studio. And then you started talking about the scale of architecture. And then we talked about the value uh, add to to design. 
pricing is always a challenge for creatives. Mm-hmm. Um, we've obviously been there and kind of trying to explain ourselves <laughs> why we cost as much as we do. Uh, how do you go about estimating projects and uh, has your pricing process changed over time through your many, many false starts? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, we still do flat fee as, and we're really upfront with that. We're like, I, I don't want to keep changing this thing. And I mean, if there's big scope creep, mm-hmm. yeah, we'll, we'll give them a heads up and we'll, you know, add to the contract. But I think we're up front, like, I, I don't care about your budget. I care about the scope of work that we're going to do. And so, because in architecture, it's it's commonly applied by a percentage. So if you've got a high budget and it's a percentage of it, right, then clients are suspicious when you keep specking more and more costly <laughs> yeah. things because you're just taking a piece of it. Yeah. So we're like, no, it's flat fee. If we, if we solve it really quickly, we win. And if it takes us some time yeah. to solve it, you don't lose as a client because we're just all going to work to get it right. I think the other thing we do though, because we have kind of a diverse range of pretty successful startup, like tech offices and then like very small businesses, and, you know, restaurants and retail and things is that we do take the approach of considering where they're at and try to meet our clients where they're at. And so I think one thing that has changed with Ivy as an example Morgan and York changed to York as an example is we've come in and where there isn't a lot of cash capital to start. And so paying a designer is, you know, hard to say, oh, and then we'll get more cash capital to invest in this as well. We've started talking about equity structures. And so we're a partner in Ivy and a partner in York for that. It's like, don't pay us, just give us equity. We'll figure out how to get this thing done. And then we're also on the ownership side that we're clearly not trying to spend money just to make the design look <laughs> right. good. We are yeah. trying to spend the money to make the business work because we're literally part of the business owner team to ownership team without the capital at the front. So I think that's the most dramatic shift in our pricing structure is we try to work on a sliding scale. I mean, it's not very like transparent. There's no rubric to it. I still just kind of like put my finger to the wind and hope for the best. And then this, this equity structure to like, enable and support small businesses from like not being priced out. Cause yeah, like we, we work at a certain level of value. And so even if you can't pay for that value, exchanging for that value and keeping like our value high, instead of like couponing or discounting it out, right. there's a way to kind of exchange that price for something else. Yeah. So yeah. we love the, the idea of doing that because like you said, like the, the work has mm-hmm. a value. And it, it doesn't it doesn't change, but how you approach that client can. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. And then the last question we have for you uh, before we get into the slow burn is: when people look at one of your projects, what do you if you sum it up in three words or less? Like, what do you want people to think or feel when they see a connectivity project or space? Like, yes, we care. Like, is it right? Because like the that's clients just- care. Like to to have like seen through that vision and that they care enough to like provide the space for other people to experience. But I, that's probably it. That's pretty solid on yeah. the spot. You can, you can <laughs> yeah. go into like the bonus. <laughs> yeah. 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 We're reminding people like, like she has not, Lisa has not seen any of these questions. That's a perfect segue to the slow burn. That's almost like a, a slow burn type of question. Yeah. So uh, like this, yeah, exactly. <laughs> This was used to be a rapid fire question section, and then we don't really care about how long it takes, so we we renamed it (laughs) Burn. But the first question we always ask everyone is just, how do you define success personally? 
I think about this a lot and I think success is about impact. And so impact, I think I, I'm at the point where I like a lot of false starts and I'm kind of, I'm ramping up and I'm finding a, a big village of support. And I'm remembering when I was at my kitchen table, hoping that somebody would find us and not even knowing how. And so thinking about ways that I can leverage where I'm at to make an impact for somebody else that hasn't even been invited to the table. And I think knowing that I have, like, I, I feel very successful now in the place I am in the community to be able to invite people to the table. So yeah, being able to make an impact. The next question is about a time when you experienced doubt, uh, either about starting the business, having the right skills, et cetera. And if you've never uh, experienced doubt, <laughs> uh, just you can make something up just hypothetically. I don't think anybody can <laughs> yeah, yeah, that yeah. Way. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I got an executive coach just a couple months ago because I think I was at that point of like, what am I doing and what is my role, mm-hmm. right? Because I, I think that's the thing, like, you start as a designer with like an itch to do that work. And then you find yourself in like a CEO role and you're like running a business is much different. And so is that what I'm good at or should somebody else be doing that? And so I'm working through that right now. Like how, how am I part of the team? Like, am I working in the business or on the business? I have those questions every day. Yeah. That's a question we hear all the time (laughs) and, and think all the time. I like that you've kind of, during this conversation, rebranded the word failure to false starts, or I think we just have collectively. <laughs> so uh, the original question is, what's the lasting lesson you've learned from a failure? But we can use false start They're if you want. false starts. <laughs> yeah, so, there's a lot of false starting. <laughs> yeah. I think what I learned from all of it was what I'm trying to do now is I feel like I'm in a comfort zone, like things are happening and, and I wouldn't have gotten here without taking risks because I had nothing to lose. Right. And so I think having the endurance to go through another failure, another failure, another failure is that every time I failed, I didn't lose enough that it mattered. I mean, when we started, it's like I had student loan debt. I didn't have a job. I was a single mom. Like I had like I was living in an apartment with no furniture, like figuring out how I was going to make the next rent payment. So it's like, I literally couldn't lose much more. <laughs> right. And so I, I think actually what I learned from that is that, that I had so much power and ability in that time that I need to be less afraid now and just actually staying in that mindset. It was like not, it's kind of the opposite of like, what would you tell yourself when you started? Yeah. It's actually like, I wish the self I started with could keep yeah. reminding me <laughs> to keep point. taking yeah. risk. That's what they always say. Like, you know, the best time to start a business is when you're whatever, 22 yeah. or whatever, and you're already sleeping on the floor anyway somewhere. Yeah. But I, I do think it is like, you still have to like maintain that course, even if you did start when you're 22 or when you yeah. don't have furniture, whenever that is, things go off the rails when you. Yeah. When you start playing it safe yeah. and you're like, oh, well now I'm just where I would have been. Right. I didn't do it. Yeah. So like you're only going to move it forward if you take a leap. Yeah. The next question is kind of a two-parter. One thing that you found surprisingly difficult when you started the business and then one thing that maybe was surprisingly easy. Mm-mm. I think this is it's, the answer is the same. We started <laughs> architecture studio as not architects. So in our profession, similar to kind of any other regulated profession like a lawyer or a doctor right like you need to be licensed and so we started 
not even having one degree, let alone the master's degree and all the licensure and testing and things. And so the easiest thing was if you looked around and figured out how to function as an alternative process practice, it was possible, right? We could find an architect to review and sign off on our work. Like it was possible to start, right? Cause the, the profession says, do you know, go to school and get your hours and get your license and then you can start a practice. And we were like, we just flipped it and just did it. Yeah. So it was really easy. And on the other side, it was actually very hard because there were certain cranky architects that were like, you can't do it that way. <laughs> You're being deceitful and dangerous to the profession. And so we had to maneuver and make a case for ourselves and be very transparent, especially with our clients. Like, hey, this is how we function. Some people don't understand it, but it's completely legit. Yeah. Are you on board? <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. We're not trying to deceive you either. Working in this regulated field of architecture yeah. is a very interesting kind of pro-con of doing it the way we did. It is interesting, like um, just regulated industries in general, a lot of them are so like they've done all the like mm-hmm. certifications and the schoolwork and the hours. So I can imagine there would be some. Oh yeah. Some, I mean, some, um, there's less, lobbying yeah. against well, us. We can, we can say <laughs> no assholes on the, on the podcast, but yeah, you could, you could imagine that would be yeah. uh, hard to maybe find a, a huge list of those that are totally into it. Yep. This is kind of the, the most curveball of all the questions, at least for most, which is which, what is one song that captures you as a person? He did warn you. So, yeah. I know. And also someone just said, I don't really listen to music. Is that okay? So, no. so you don't have to um, worry about There, <laughs> it's, it's between like two very bizarrely different songs. So the Billy, Billy Joel Vienna song, which basically talks about like not being satisfied and pushing yourself and like always like cutting yourself short. And then the other song, which I think is what always last few years it's like macklemore's downtown it's like late at night when we're like here like hitting a deadline at midnight i will crank it up until like the walls rattle and adam laughs at me hysterically as i like pound my feet and jump around but it's the only way i can like i have to like push through to like get some of this stuff done and so i think that just like as a beat like you just need something that like (laughs) hits you at the right beat to just push that yeah and that's it so right there's like this one that's like more about your soul and then there's another one that's just like get the fucking shit done (laughs) yeah yeah. (laughs) that's great well Well, we'll, you have one song that will like mixtape it or something yeah yeah, now we have just become djs this should be interesting downtown vienna uh, <laughs> another thing that we do is we ask a question from a previous guest what question they'd like to ask the next one um, they usually don't know who the next guest is um, this is from joseph garcia uh, who's the founder of Nichols, and he just said please finish this sentence in an alternative version of my life where i don't have my current career i'd most likely be oh i would most likely be a forest ranger is there a story no, I just, just like I want that. <laughs> I just want that. <laughs> Sometimes I just want that, and that's why I, I was like, "Man, I really wish I was like in one of the like forest fire like huts, like way like looking yeah. over and just like isolated in the woods, like getting a forest bath and being a forest ranger." So awesome. yeah, park ranger. That's my uh, retirement or escape plan. Yeah, it's a, a really good escape <laughs> sort of plan. Like if it all goes wrong, I'm just gonna go out and go the, the forest. <laughs> They're going to pay me to do it. Yeah. yeah, that's great. At the time of this recording, it's almost Halloween. Or have you ever been a forest ranger for? No. <laughs> <laughs> it's a free service yeah. they're providing. Like, I really Halloween costume ideas. 
Oh man, I do have like a junior ranger patch. I can probably find some discount shirt <laughs> yeah, and like patch it on. Holiday. You're welcome. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> just pat yourself on the back there. So naturally, this gets to the point where you get to ask our next guest whatever question you'd like to ask them. Oh, gosh. And it can be generally like usually business owners, entrepreneurs, people have chosen to do their own thing in one way, shape, or form. Why not? That's going to be great. Now we need to make sure we have... Oh, a perfect guest. <laughs> I think we do. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I was going to say, I have a few in mind. So you've made it through the slow burn. You've made it through all of our questions, ridiculous and otherwise. So our, our actual reward, other than the free Halloween costume idea, <laughs> is just 30 seconds to plug anything you want that's going on, uh, anything that's interesting or, or otherwise. Oh, man. All the things. Well, I mean, a couple of things. In, in the scale of the city is we're trying to do, you know, murals mural festival with the Ann Arbor Art Center and Art and Public Committee. So that's just an exciting thing to do, placemaking. I think working at the scale of the city and making things happen for the community is really exciting. So we're doing that. And then I'm starting a photography and creative studio with my friend Abby awesome. next in the dry cleaner that's next to York. So great, like starting on York and designing that out and being an that's equity cool. partner and then being like, hey, what's going on next door? We should do something cool and find somebody We'll lease that out to make this hub of communities. I was going to say, like, what was the order? Well, I'll just lease it. <laughs> yeah. I'll just do it. You know, and so I think it's now doing the equity thing and then thinking about what businesses we're going to be part of. And then also just seeing the gap and be like, oh, I can start that business. Um, finding people to do it with. That's the next thing. Awesome. So just fun stuff. All right. Thank you, guys. Yeah. Thank you for your time. We appreciate it. Yeah. And that's our episode, everybody. If you had a blast like we did, make sure to subscribe to the show. You're listening to it already. You might as well. It's available on Apple, Spotify, and everywhere else. And hey, make sure to share all the love with the makers and breakers out there in your life. And thanks for listening and keep your life on brand. Life on Brand is a Hug Finch production. Make sure to check us out at hugfinch.com for all your branding needs. That website again is hugfinch.com. 